Welcome to Our Faith in Writing. I'm Charlotte Donlin. As a writer and a spiritual director for writers, I believe writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. Our Faith in Writing explores the intersection of writing and faith through conversations about the writing process, the reading life, contemplative practices, and more. Thanks for listening. You're about to hear an episode from one of my old podcasts that explores themes connected to our faith in writing. You may hear the Lists of Nine podcast or the Art and Faith Unplugged podcast mentioned during this episode, and that's okay. You're still here with us at Our Faith in Writing. Thanks again for listening. I'm delighted to have Ashley M. Jones and Kava Akbar here again to discuss Ashley's new book of poems, Reparations Now. Ashley M. Jones is the author of Magic City Gospel and Dark Thing. Her poetry has earned several awards, including the Rona Jaff Foundation Writers Award, the Lucille Clifton Poetry Prize, and the Lucille Clifton Legacy Award. Her poems and essays appear in or are forthcoming at CNN, Poetry, The Oxford American, Origins Journal, and many others. She teaches at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. She co-directs Penn Birmingham, and she is the founding director of the Magic City Poetry Festival. Kava Akbar is the author of Pilgrim Bell and Calling a Wolf a Wolf and has received honors such as a Levis Reading Prize and multiple pushcart prizes. Born in Tehran, Iran, he teaches at Purdue University and in low residency programs at Warren Wilson and Randolph Colleges. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I'm glad we were able to get the band back together for this episode. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks so much, Charlotte. Ashley, I also want to just tell you that I love Reparations Now. It is brilliant, and I look forward to seeing how it makes its way into the world. Thank you so much. That means a lot. So I would love for you to start us off by reading a couple of your poems, and then after you read, I would love to hear or listen to y'all have a conversation about some of the poems in Reparations Now, and then I'll jump back in with some questions about themes of loneliness and belonging in Ashley's work. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. Great. I'm excited. Okay. All right. So I'll start with Hymn of Our Jesus and the Holy Tow Truck. Is it that easy, God, to be pulled or as if a car half crushed, maybe to follow? on the back of a tow truck. And incidentally, Lord, is that you I see flexed on the crossbar of a rusty wrecker on its way to the east side of Birmingham, which is like Eden, growing holy fruit. My mother, the summer plot of peach. My father, the strong tomato, its unbending vine. Did you teach them to grow this way in the sweat of Alabama, strong as the dying crow, its blood-hardened wing straight as a crucifix, pointing always, easily, stubbornly, straight up, pious as a bone toward you. That one's hard to read, just have to spin the book around. <laughs> yeah, for, for the people who aren't, oh, 
I'm not supposed to ask questions yet, am I? No, you go ahead. Go ahead. You got it. I was, I was just going to say for the people who aren't looking at the booklet yet, like we are, can you, can you, I mean, it's after the poem of Mary Shebist's in, uh, in Carnadine, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about what it looks like for the people who can't see it in front of them? Yes. So this is in what I call a starburst shape, but I'm sure Mary, um, Seabist, is that how you pronounced her last name? I've been saying Zybist this whole time. Yeah, I'm it's sorry. Like, I think it's like Sheebist, yeah. <laughs> well, my belated apologies, Mary Sheebist, for butchering your name for years. But I'm sure that she has a real, you know, name for it. But it looks like, like the sun, sort of. The words come out like the rays of the sun. And so you have to spin the, the page to read it. And in theory, you can read it from any line, like start from any line and end from any line in theory. Yeah, yeah. So there's this sort of like Ouroboric effect where, it, you know, it's sort of just endless and circular radial in this way. Um, and it, it's it's just beautiful on the page. And I was really struck by that being the first poem in the book. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm already ruining the, uh, I'm already ruining the format of the show. <laughs> um, but I was just excited about no, it. No, you're fine. I'm glad that you like it. It was fun to put together for sure. And so I guess I'll read now part five of um, a longer poem called Reparations, Now Reparations, Tomorrow Reparations, Forever. And this is um, the fifth part called A Case for Reparations. So if you read the whole poem, it uses, it's a partial, I guess, collage or found poem using words from George Wallace's 1963 inaugural address and also my own words. And this fifth part is all me, all me all day. A Case for Reparations. When, Governor, can we enjoy the full richness of the great American dream? My grandmother was a sharecropper. My grandfather beat his black wife and black children. My uncle was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. In America, even the shadows of black people are black enough to hide all innocence. Some nights, I dream of being killed like Emmett Till or Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland or insert black person's name here. Some nights I insert my name there. Is that the American dream? Governor, president, mayor, boss man, woman with a cell phone or a police badge or a bank account and the skin tender enough to make murder legal? When will you be tired of the taste of black blood? Sometimes I'm singing a song and you make that feel like death. Sometimes I'm dancing a dance and you make that feel like shame. Sometimes I'm sitting on my porch just trying to eat a damn melon and you make that feel like I'm selling my black soul. My parents told me I could be anything, even God. That's the least I'm owed, to know I'm worth heaven, yes, but also worth a life on earth. My mother told us we were pretty enough to be dolls, pretty enough to be praised in the book of Barbie. That's the least I'm owed, a face, skin, hair so obviously, inherently, objectively beautiful. It's frozen in plastic and sold to kids all over America to hug and love and look at with the eyes of dreams. 
What, you think all I want is money? What, you think money can ever repay what you stole? Give me land. Give me all the blood you ripped out of our backs, our veins. Give me every snapped neck and the noose you wove to hoist the body up. Give me the screams you silenced in so many dark and lustful rooms. Give me the songs you said were yours, but you know came out of our lips first. Give me back Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Give me back the beauty of my hair, the swell of my hips, the big of my lips. Give me back the whole Atlantic Ocean. Give me a never ending blue and a mule. Beautiful, beautifully read. So I guess it's up to you, Kava, <laughs> to, to say. Yeah, that. no, I, I apologize. I was just sort of letting it reverberate. I apologize. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about just how that how that sequence began? It's sort of the backbone of this book, and obviously, a lot of I mean, the the book's title is inflected by that. So, do you want to talk a little bit about how the sequence began? Sure. So, I remember. Um, Maybe it was two years ago. I don't know what years are anymore, to be honest. So at some point in the past, the recent past, I was teaching. So for some reason, I was teaching about 1963. I often find myself teaching history because I'm a poet and you can't really be a poet without history. And so I took it upon myself for some reason to read the entirety of George Wallace's inaugural speech, which I recommend, but also don't recommend because um, <laughs> it's like, terrible. Mm -hmm. But I read it. And that was during the time when we had, what's his name as a president. And it struck me that the words in that speech literally sound like what that person would say, like, it was as if plucked from his mouth, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, I already knew this to be true, that these are all the same person. And it's the same, you know, agenda, you know, that's, that's still being carried out or attempted or whatever. But I thought, well, maybe maybe I need to show people that this is like really, really real. This is really still happening. So I decided to write a poem. And at first I thought I would just use words from the speech because it's kind of long. And I wanted to sort of pluck out what the speech was saying without reproducing the whole thing. But then I decided to add some of my own words because I needed to have conversation. I couldn't let George Wallace or whoever wrote the speech be the only voice in the room. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting to me throughout the book is how you treat time, how time is one of the mediums that you are manipulating to create the lyric world, the lyric vortex, which is why I thought it was interesting that you opened with that kind of radial pattern poem as well. Can you talk about, you know, putting yourself in conversation or I don't know if conversation is the right word, but engaging with the work of evil dead men but also but also just you know engaging with time the way that you are throughout this collection yeah i think um the way that i engage with time and i i didn't know i didn't have vocabulary for this as a younger person but one of my mentors donna azawirsoli who is also a poet she taught us in grad school about the African, you know, usage of time, really the usage of time by everybody but Westerners, 
which is that it's cyclical and it's overlapping and it's not this you know linear thing. I think that's always been the case for me just as a black person and as a southerner, doubly so. You can't escape history. It's always there with you literally because we are still living on the land where the stuff happened, yeah. but also like more, you know, spiritually metaphorically whatever, all of those ancestors and voices are within you. I mean, I'm not white, I'm not a man, but George Wallace and his legacy does live in me somewhere somehow which maybe is opening an interesting can of worms, which I'm closing <laughs> immediately because I don't know if I'm ready to really deal with that. But but yeah, so that, that comes through in the poems always for me. I can't really separate myself from my history or my future at all. It's all the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think about, as you talk about that, I was thinking a little bit about the Argentinian writer, Jorge Luis Borges, who is one of my sort of, guys that I go to a lot, one of my people, one of the brightest stars in my constellation. But he talked about how the writing from antiquity or the the older writing that you encounter can be inflected by newer writing. So his example was that your reading of Cervantes could be inflected by your reading of Kafka, right? Kafka influenced Cervantes, right? That's what that's his famous quote. It's like Kafka influenced Cervantes, right? Which on its face sounds ridiculous because Kafka lived centuries after Cervantes, right? But but if you read, you know, the metamorphosis before you read Don Quixote, then your reading of Don Quixote is indelibly inflected by the metamorphosis, right? And so I think a lot about how my encounters with narratives of American atrocity in any number of directions inflect my ability to perceive beauty, right? The, you know, when I encounter something beautiful in the world or in my living or even in a text, a, a beautiful, something, something beautifully rendered, it is using the same language or using the same sensory apparatus that has already been used to engage with the work of the atrocity of empire, right? Uh, the atrocity of this empire, right? And that seems to me like one of the really central features of this book as well, right? Is the ability to engage something like beauty or love uh, while also sort of holding the potential for harm within uh, the language and within the history and the tapestries that you're weaving with the temporal tapestries that you're weaving. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I know that's sort of like a complicated non-question. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, we can just wrap that up in plastic and sell it with a <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do think about this, this concept a lot, maybe not in those same terms. And now I want to reread Don Quixote thinking yeah. about Kafka. <laughs> like, <laughs> Because, I mean, when I read it, I was just trying to understand it. It was in Spanish class. So I was like, ooh, oh, this really? Is yeah. Wait, you read it in Spanish? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's I don't, awesome, I feel like I've I found like a want... tool. Like... <laughs> no, but everyone always says, like, you haven't read it until you've read it in Spanish. I know, I know someone who, like, literally, like, learned Spanish, like, they, like, took Spanish so that they could read Don Quixote in Spanish. Oh, wow. Like, like it supposedly. You know, it doesn't count if you haven't read it actually in Spanish. So I mean, I I've never read it. I definitely partially learned Spanish just so I could, you know, understand Mark Anthony um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and watch telenovelas, but also for literature, of course. It's great. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, I do think about this language 
that I use, which is English, to write about and against, you know, things that happen to my people or to myself. And I sort of think about, as a Black person and as a Southern person, there are ways to rebel against the the oppression of the language itself. Part of that is by telling a real story instead of the story that has been given. And part of it is to use the language in a non-standard way. So I definitely don't have the magic of, you know, my grandmother, how she used to speak. Some would call it African-American vernacular. Some used to call it Ebonics back in the 90s. I don't think we use that term anymore. But that to me is like how you push against the atrocity and like the active terrorism of even literally using English. Like if we really think about it, the fact that I'm speaking English right now and that's my first language, like terror, that's actually terror, <laughs> you know, yeah. we should not be speaking it <laughs> at all because I shouldn't be here, you know, but alas, colonialism. So yeah, so I try to incorporate that into the work. The work needs to read as Black and as Southern and as not down with all this foolishness down to a language level or the way that I'm using punctuation or the way that I'm subverting form. All of that is trying to push against the terror that you talked about or what you're receiving, the same sensory, you know, I don't know, stuff, canvas, machine that you're, you're experiencing the world with. Yeah, hopefully that's an answer. Your- yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Can you talk about how that how that looks, how that looks in practice, like at a craft level for the poets who are listening to this, how stranging the language or breaking the language or what that, you know, you, you said you want it to read to, as legibly Black and legibly Southern, right? Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what that looks like in practice for you? Yeah, so I'm thinking most immediately about all y'all from Alabama, and even the reparations poem. Um, but I'll start with all y'all. It's a sonnet, and it has. Will you read it? Will you read it? Do we have time for that, Charlotte? I will try. If Charlotte cool. says yes, cool. okay, yes, I'll read Thank it. Thank you so much. Uh, let me find it. Some would say I should have memorized it by now, but I have no idea where anything is in my new book. <laughs> it takes a it takes a minute. There it is. Found it. All y'all really from Alabama. And it starts with an epigraph. Thunder. Um, The straitjackets of race prejudice and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., why we can't wait. This here, the cradle of this here nation. Everywhere you look, roots run right back south. Every vein filled with red dirt, blood, cotton. We the dirty words you spit out your mouth. Mason Dixon is an imagined line. You can theorize it or wish it real but it's the same old ghost, see-through, benign. All y'all from Alabama, we the wheel turning cotton to make the nation move. We the scapegoat in a land built from death. No longitude or latitude disproves the truth of founding father's sacred oath. We hold these truths like dark snuff in our jaw 
Black oppressions, not happenstance, it's law. So yeah, that's that's that one. So do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about tying that into what you had been talking about, you know, like stranging, breaking the language? Yeah, so I took a page from Gwendolyn Brooks and used, quote unquote, the language of the oppressor. And maybe I'm also taking a page from Phyllis Wheatley in that same vein. Um, But I really loved when I was like in a deep study of Brooks one summer, just for fun, I guess, because it was fun. I realized that she used sonnet-like form or literal sonnets, and she kind of put her spin on it. So I'm thinking specifically about the poem Kitchenette Building, where it's not exactly a sonnet. It's very close to it, though, um, and it's about living in, like, a tenement building. So it's taking this very, like, formal and, you know, very traditionally white form, the sonnet, the almighty, you know, sonnet, and having it center poor people, poor Black people. And so in that same vein with this piece, I wanted to use a sonnet form because it does provide the, you know, the rhythm. And it's also like unquestionably poetic. You know what I mean? Like all the old heads are like, oh, a sonnet is a poem. There's no, you know. I'm like, cool, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to tell this truth that I think needs to be told. And I'm also going to make this not even really look like a sonnet, but it has all the sonnety stuff in there. So even though you can get mad and say, oh, but you made it a prose block, which I did so that you can't like escape. There's no white space for you to leave what's what's being said. Mm. But you get that. And then once you get to that last couple, you're like, wait, what is this? And then you count the syllables and then you're just mad forever. That's that's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's fascinating. I um. I had a situation once where I was teaching a pedagogy course and, and one of my, so I was teaching MFA students how to teach undergrad students poetry, right? Which is sort of complicated, uh, complicated construction. I guess it's, it's complicated, but one of my MFA students had the experience of teaching the poem Pluto Shits on the Universe by Fatima Asghar mm-hmm. to her classroom and there was a person in her classroom who said something to the effect of, you know, this isn't poetry. This is just, you know, she's just cussing, you know, she's just, she's just saying stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And so my immediate response was to tell my student to bring to her student, you know, some of Fati's sonnets, some of Fati's villanelles and be like, look, she can do all the stuff that you think poetry is supposed to do. You know, she's perfectly capable of doing all the stuff that you think a poem is supposed to be so why might she be making the decision to make the poem sound like this right that was my that was my immediate response you know i, I sometimes i you know i'll show like t Payne's tiny desk concert you know to my students and it's like I, I, I don't know if you've seen it but he you know he has the voice of an angel you know he like he, yeah. he sings like a like a you know like an archangel you know what i mean like he has a really really gorgeous singing voice and it's this thing where everyone assumes that because he uses autotune, like he can't actually sing, you know, like that that he's using autotune because he's not able to do the traditional thing. But the but the truth is that he's not doing the traditional thing because he chooses not to do the traditional thing, right? It's an aesthetic decision, right? Just as just as with Fati's Pluto shits on the universe. But then I th- I started thinking about like what is it that makes me want to legitimize it by like passing it through tradition. Right. And so like the next week 
I like corrected myself to my student, right? I was like, you know what? I don't actually agree with what I just did, like pedagogically, you know, like I don't actually think that Fatih's poem is only valid because she can do this other shit. You know what I mean? Like I, and, and I think that your poem is also sort of, this is a long roundabout way of saying like, you know, you, you're doing this because, you know, you're, you have a singular unprecedented poetic voice, right? And you are, aware of the tradition sure but you're also making your own thing as you know brooks made her own thing as you know everyone tries to make their own thing right and and yeah i mean my takeaway from that whole situation was like passing through the terminal of tradition is not a prerequisite to legitimacy you know what i'm saying and and I, and I like the way that like, just visually like legend, you know, this poem isn't like immediately like I'm a sonnet, you know how like you just like glance at a poem and it's in that sort of like left yeah. <laughs> box of shape and you're like, that's probably a sonnet, you know, before you right. even like, lines or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I like that about this poem too. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should probably as poets of color specifically, probably um, like think about what you just said more that we don't need to pass through something because it does yeah. feel that way that's a part of the terror also it's yeah. like yeah constantly like i belong i belong you know yeah yeah it's like you have to listen to me white people because i can do the thing that you think i'm supposed to be able to do you know what i'm saying like yeah. like i can do the italian parlor game called the sonnet <laughs> you know that that you think I'm supposed to be able to do. And because I can do that, you now have to listen to me when I do this. Right. Like, I don't think that that's actually like, I don't think that we should only listen to T-Pain because he can sing the way that he, you know what I mean? Like, I think that when there are, obviously there are lots of iterations in visual art too, right? Like lots of people talk about like Picasso mastered portraiture before he turned to abstraction. Right. As if Mm -hmm. like, that makes the abstraction more legitimate. I mean, Picasso is a kind of funny example because he was a dick, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how we're doing on time, Charlotte, but I thought it would be, well, Charlotte, you wanted to talk too, and I feel like I may be gobbling up the airspace. Well, I do want to have a conversation about how, Ashley's poems and her creative process help her belong to herself, others, God, and the world. And I think that can bring in um, specific poems or just talk about that in general. So I will offer that as a topic of conversation. And Ashley, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and then see where that, how that unfolds. Mm, a nice small question for <laughs> the end. <laughs> well, I definitely think that being a poet is what helps me live on planet Earth because this is a horrible place to live, at least to me. Like, it's there's a lot here that's difficult. And I do feel more connected to something, definitely more connected to God and to just my own like soul when I'm reading or writing poetry. But I also feel like the act of poetry, not just the reading or writing, but like, I don't know, the verb to poet, to to poem, whatever, that really helps me to feel connected to humans more. You know, when I read a poem by Kava, for example, and I see like a glimmer of myself in there, I'm like, oh, wait, that person is a person. I'm a person. We're people together. You know, that's really 
really amazing to me. And it's what keeps me coming back to poetry because there's nothing else in the world except maybe music, which is poetry, you know, that does that for me. Like regular conversation is cool, but poetry conversation is better. You know, church is cool, but God through poetry kind of better to me, you know, eating is cool, but reading about food is sometimes better, you know, like almost anything in, in this life I've found more, more enjoyable or more real through poetry. And so hopefully that's an answer. That's how I feel the most connected to everything is through writing and reading and being a poet. It's beautiful. Kava, does that resonate with you or do you resonate with that? I never say that right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. It, It also made me think about, especially for a book of poems that is, maybe this is too sort of on the nose, but uh, for a book of poems that is coming out in a, after a quarantine year where we've all sort of spent 18 months by ourselves, this poem struck me as incredibly peopled, you know? And so in a way that in a, in a time where we weren't really spending as much time with the people that we love, you know, it's almost like you sort of manifested these little terrariums, right? Where it's like, here's where I'm hanging out with, you know, Gladys Knight. And here's where I'm hanging out with Kanye. And here's where I'm hanging out with Al Green. You know what I mean? Like, like it's just like, there are all these people or Mary Sheevist or Gwendolyn Brooks. You know what I mean? There's just all these people in this book and, and there are all these little sort of like ecosystems. And, and it almost feels like that's another extension of what you're talking about, right? Where it's like hanging out with people is great but like sometimes it's cool to hang out with people in a poem too yeah I love that (laughs) I love that and I also one thing I noticed and it it grabbed my attention with the first poem with how you're talking about how you have to turn the book read Mm -hmm. it is how embodied it is and as a reader having to actually like use my body to read that first poem from the very beginning kind of makes me more aware of how I'm connecting to myself as a reader, Hmm. but it also helped me notice how you're connecting to yourself in these poems and how you're connecting to your body. There's, there are a lot of references to the body, to the celebration of your body. And I um, would love to hear your thoughts on that. If that's something you'd like to talk about. Yeah. I mean, it kind of falls under the, Blank is better in poetry. Even my body is better in poetry, or at least my memory of like loving my body is better with poetry. I think we all can can relate to struggling with connecting to our bodies um, spiritually, but also physically. Everybody went through puberty. That was wild, you know, <laughs> and terrible. And I don't know. I just feel like I feel my fullest self even down to my actual body when I'm reading a poem. Like I'm more aware of my body if I'm standing somewhere or sitting somewhere reading a a poem. I can feel, you know, my skin, all my nerves are, you know, tuned in. And maybe that's the experience also for like my brain, my heart, whatever. Hopefully that's the experience for the reader. I'm glad to hear that you felt some some of that as you were reading. But yeah, yeah, my body is is also a poem. So, you know. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Something you said just made me think of something I tell my clients a lot as a spiritual director is that when, and I meet primarily with writers, but I tell them when I'm writing and when I'm practicing spiritual direction, I feel like I'm more of who God made me. Mm -hmm. That sounded a little bit like what you just, 
um, <laughs> put words around. No, exactly. Yeah, way. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. I think I can hear, I can hear God clearly when I'm reading or writing a poem or when I'm experiencing the world as a poet. If I deny myself poetry, then I'm denying myself God and all the like splendor of the world. Wow, amen. Can I ask a sort of obnoxious yes. question, uh, but that I'm curious about? What Uh-oh. do you mean when you say God? What do I mean when I say God? Yeah. Both of y'all with these questions that nobody can answer quickly. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. But it's just, it's it's one of these unanswerable questions that I still love to ask myself and I love to ask of my beloveds. Yes. Well, thank you. That's kind that I fall into that category. Um <laughs> I, when I say God, I'll start by saying, I don't know what God is because God is too big to Mm -hmm. know. So I don't know a gender for God. I don't know one name for God. God can be a leaf one day. God can be a book one day. God can be an egg or whatever is up there. Mm -hmm. You know, God is a feeling to me as well. Sometimes like, I don't know, like in the summertime, if a breeze comes through suddenly in the South, let me start there in the heat of the South, mm-hmm. if a breeze passes by and you're like sweating and it, it cools you, that's God. You know, it's just God is too much for me to even put into words. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I would say to that question yeah. an obnoxious answer for an obnoxious no, question. No, 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 that's great. That's beautiful. That's <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Well, I do. I think it is time for us to wrap up, unfortunately, but I. Uh, thank both of you for joining me for this conversation, celebrating Ashley's new book. I really appreciate both of you and your approach to language and poems and art and faith. And um, I'm so happy to hear you talk about poems. So thank you. Thank you so much, Carla. Ashley's book is called Reparations Now. It's out with Hub City Press imminently. It might already be out by the time this podcast. I think it yeah. is coming out. Oh, today. it's going to be out today. It's out today. Today, yeah. Out. today, yeah. today, so, today. Yeah, it's out today. Oh, wait, like literally today, our today? No, no, today, no, no, the future. Oh, the future. Okay, okay. Future, future us is today. <laughs> see, this is that This is that temporal silly you buddy see? that we're talking about. But, but it's an incredible book. Um, I'm so grateful and better made for having read yes. it. Yes. Thank you. And I will include information about Ashley's new book and Kava's new book in um, the show notes for this episode, along with a few other things that were mentioned. And I hope you continue to put yourself in the way of art because good things happen when we put ourselves in the way of art. All right. That's all for this episode of Our Faith in Writing. Thanks so much for listening and giving your attention to the ways writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. I'd love for you to visit us online at ourfaithinwriting.com where you can find more information about my spiritual direction for writers and other contemplative offerings, read essays and articles by writers who care about faith, and learn more about our partners and sponsors. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charlotte Donlin. Subscribe to Our Faith in Writing wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show, letting us know how these conversations help you feel less alone in your writing life and your reading life.